500,000 times a month people Google how to study your Bible or some phrase similar to that. That's something that people are interested in. It's something that many of you maybe have Googled yourself and you're trying to figure out how do we study the Bible? If the Bible is God's word revealed to us, which we talked about last time, and I encourage you, if you didn't hear it last week, go back and listen to that message because we talked about does the Bible claim to be God's word? And we, our conclusion was yes, it does. And so now our, our understanding for this week is, so how do we understand it? How do we interpret it? And there are three major things that when you open your Bible that I encourage you to consider, and that is observation, interpretation, and application. Three things. Observation, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does the text mean? And then application, how do we apply it? To our lives. If we stop short of application, then what happens is we become very intellectual Christians who can argue with the best of them, but we have nothing in our lives that shows that we are believers in Christ. And there's so many accusations against Christians that we just argue with one another on the one hand, and we're not doing what we say we believe, and so they call us hypocrites. And I think we've got to do better, right? We've got to be those who take it all the way and not just know the Word of God, but actually live it in our lives. And so that people can see uh, and glorify our Heavenly Father, as, as uh, uh, Jesus said at the end of, uh, or in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he talked about that we're a light on a hill. Let your works glorify your Heavenly Father. When people see them, they will glorify Him. And so that's what we want to do, and so that's where we're leading. And so we've got to understand the text as well as, as uh, uh, observe it. And so uh, we look at our text today. We start at verse 20, 2 Peter 1.20. It says, above all, above all, first, this is very important. He's pointing it out. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. And then he gives the reason why he says that. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that verse 21 last time, that prophecy isn't originated in man. It, it was originated by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit moved people along much like wind blows a ship. And it, and it moves it along and it's carried along by this strong wind. Uh, and that's what we see uh, in terms of the origin of Scripture, the Scriptures come from God. And so if they come from God, then if we're going to understand them, then we need to understand what God intended. We've got to understand uh, how these passages, uh, what the phrases mean and what the, what the pa paragraphs mean and what the, what the words themselves mean, what the books themselves mean, what the context of the Scripture means. And so we ask our, ourselves those three questions. What does the text say? What does it mean? How does it work? And then we ask the six questions of observation. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. So I'm going to give you a few phrases so that you can uh, have a test on interpretation, okay? Here's the uh, uh, first phrase. What is meant by this? New obesity study looks for a larger test group. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you see, uh, I could go, you know, either way. 
Children make nutritious snacks. <laughs> Hopefully you don't mean it in the, you know, that they are the snack. Um, criminals get nine months in violin case. Are they serving time in a violin case or because of the violin case is the question, right? John Eldridge, in conversations with John Eldridge, tells a story of uh, his son. He, was give, he, he read a, a night uh, a story so they go to sleep. And, and so then his son asks a question. He says, uh, Dad, I, I heard you and Mom talking about uh, how money is tight. And John said, it was quick to say, oh, don't worry about it, son. Uh, there, there are all, a lot of times. There are seasons where finances are tight. And he says, no, no, Dad. He says, he says I'm just concerned about you and Mom. He says, you know, I mean, you have to sleep in the same bed. <laughs> and we have our own bed. All the kids have their own bed, and, and you don't have your own bed. And, and so well, we would really, you know, when money gets better, um, you know, I'm hopeful and I'm praying that, that you and mom will have your own bed. <laughs> well, there's a context that's misunderstood, right? And there's a context in Scripture when we read the Scripture that we, we misunderstand Scripture. Uh, AmeriQuest uh, had a series of commercials where they did some humorous commercials, and uh, one of them involved a cat. And, the, and at the end of the commercial, they said, don't judge too quickly. And so I want you to observe this and, you know, and see where context is so important to understanding what's going on. You don't want to judge too quickly, right? <laughs> Hopefully he got a chance to explain himself. Um, in an article titled, Misquoting God, verses that are commonly misunderstood, the, uh, uh, Greg Kuhl, who, uh, wrote the, or Kukul, who wrote the uh, article, said he heard a pastor one time talking about a positive mental attitude, and he quoted a passage, Proverbs 23, 7. And the proverb says this, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so he said, so you need to think positively because as you think in your heart, so you are. Well, if you read the context, you realize that's not what was being said. It says, do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desires delicacies for as he thinks within himself, so is he. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. And so what is he really saying? He's not saying have a positive mental attitude. He's saying there are people that you're going to try to please in this life and they're going to sound like they're saying one thing, but in reality they're going to mean something else and that's what they really are. That's a whole different understanding than positive mental state. Uh, so you look at that and you realize that we misunderstand Scripture all the time. 
So the, what are some of the ways where we get a faulty understanding of Scripture? There are, there are several ways. There are about five ways that I have listed. Uh, and and uh, we'll put a slide up there that has these ways listed. The first one is seek the intention of the reader, not the author. That's one way we get a faulty interpretation, a faulty read on the passage. If we're seeking the intention of me, the reader, so when I'm reading a passage and I go, oh, man, I don't, I don't really like this passage. I don't, I don't like that God tells me that I need to love my neighbor. He does, does he know my neighbor? I mean, really, you know, so all of a sudden you, you struggle with that. Nothing against uh, Wobigs over here because um, they're my neighbor. Um, but but you, you look at that and you realize, wow, uh, if, if, if it's the understanding of the reader, all of a sudden no longer do I have an objective text in front of me. I have a subjective one. And it's no longer based on the divine author's understanding, God. It's my understanding. And once I make that subtle shift to me, and I can do it because of the, the uh, uh, second thing, and that is uh, taking a 21st century perspective, and I say, well, the original authors, they, they were in a non-scientific world, and they were in a uh, patriarchal society, and so they don't understand the 21st century, and therefore, and I think, wait a minute, God understands all that. And he's the author behind the human authors. And so to discount the human authors is to discount God. And that's a scary place to be. And so I can't just take a 21st century perspective and discount Scripture. I can't just say, well, this is what it means to me, which is seeing meaning as relative uh, to me instead of somebody else. And you see that as the third thing on there, seeing meaning as relative uh, to you, not to the original recipient. And so if I see it as relative to me, then all truth becomes relative at that point. And so I have my truth and you have your truth and, you know, Scripture, I mean, who cares about the Scriptures anymore, right? Or I can read my bias into the text. And we do that all the time. I know that in, in, when I was in seminary uh, back in the uh, 80s, and as I was looking at uh, these texts of Scripture, and I had a professor tell me, he says, now I think we need to see this text in a corporate sense, in a communal sense, and not in an individualistic sense. And I went, wow, I'd never considered that for that text in Ephesians. I'd always looked at it as very individualistic, and I realized I'm wearing the lens of a Texan, a proud Texan who believes in individualism, who believes in, in uh, uh, you know, and, and I went, wow. And then I'm also reading it, what are the other lenses I'm wearing? American. In fact, I was talking to a, a guy about Texas uh, just at the men's breakfast yesterday, and, and he was from New York and had spent his whole life in New York and only been in Texas for a year. And he says, man, one, one thing I've noticed about Texas, he says, the Texas flag is everywhere. You guys are really proud of that flag. He said, I don't think I could even describe the New York flag to you. And I never really thought about how I mean, I know we're proud of the flag, but I never realized in contrast to some other parts of the country how we're proud to be Texan. And so we look at the scriptures as a Texan. We look at the scriptures as an American. You go to other parts of the world and you see the world differently through their eyes. You go up into the mountains of Ecuador among the Quechua and they see the world in, the, in a whole different way, a whole different light. 
They're living more like biblical times than, than we are, closer to those times than we are. And so you realize, wow, I, I live from an industrial age perspective and not a farming perspective. And, and so there's things that color my view of Scripture. And I need to begin to learn to take those lenses off and only have on the lens of Christ, of his perspective, and begin to ask, Lord, help me, give me insight into your word because I obviously struggle with it. I obviously have biases that influence and color my understanding of Scripture. And then there's times where we try to deconstruct the supernatural out of the Scriptures because we're in a scientific world. And so we see a miracle happen in Scripture and we kind of think, eh, I don't know if that could have happened. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. He cut out the miracles in the scriptures. And so the scriptures in Jesus died. I think the resurrection is kind of important. It's what we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks on Easter. It's a crucial part of our faith. And he just cuts it out because of an anti-supernatural bias. And it's been around for a long time. And you begin to realize, wow, am I anti-supernatural? Do I believe that God still works? Why do I pray if I don't believe he still works in people's lives? And so you begin to realize, wow, it's, we, can, we have so many things in our world that color our view of Scripture, that color our view of truth. And we shouldn't be surprised by it because our minds at the point of Adam and Eve falling in the garden became corrupted by sin. And so our minds are, are tainted by sin, so we see things through a, a darker view. And in fact, we see that, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Why? But their foolish heart became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, and so you look at it, their thinking became futile, foolish. Uh, they were darkened. And you begin to realize, wow, our 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 understanding is limited. How can we overcome a limited understanding? We overcome that limited understanding by realizing that we have the Spirit of God within us. We have the one who wrote the Scriptures within us. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, uh, about the Spirit uh, within us. I'm looking for the passage here uh, in my notes. Um, but uh, we have God's Spirit within us to help us to understand the Scriptures. You just have to take my word for it, I guess. No, here it is. 1 Corinthians 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 to 16. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except man's spirit within him? So I know my thoughts. You don't know my thoughts. That's what he's saying. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And then he says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. When did we receive that? At the moment of salvation, he tells us in Ephesians 1.13. At the moment that we believe the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we received the spirit of God. And says, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit, so the unbeliever, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. This is one book that you will read that has a spiritual component that other books you read do not have. And you need the Spirit of God to help you to understand God's thoughts. 
Spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is subject is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of God. And so when we look into any passage, we need to ask for his illumination. We need to understand that we have lenses that we're wearing, that we have biases that we try to read into the text. And every single week I'm asking the Lord, Lord, I don't want to preach Greg today. I want to preach you today. So help me to understand what you mean, not what I think you mean. And I guarantee you that that's not the case with everybody who looks into the scriptures. They don't ask that question. They come up with an outline and they say, okay, now I need to find ways that the Bible fits my outline or proves my point. And so then they'll pull things out of context like that one text that we looked at in Proverbs and, and they make it mean something. And you go, oh, wow, this is from the scriptures. It must be right. This guy knows what he's talking about. And he's not taking the approach of understanding the mind of the original author. And so that's why he says in verse 20, above all, this is most important. This is crucial stuff for you to understand. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, and the question that we ask is, okay, no prophecy of Scripture, is he only talking about prophecy or is he talking about all of Scripture? And after you study it out, it's hard to know exactly which way he's going. I think that he's probably referring to all of Scripture. He could just be referring to prophecy. But because prophecy is in the singular and not in the plural, he's, he's seeing it more as a group rather than a single individual prophecies. And so I think that he's referring most likely to all of Scripture. But... Um, uh, and, and, and I think that uh, I think that he's doing that especially because he says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he's looking at all of Scripture and how it came about and how it originated. And so I think that he's referring to all of Scripture. And so he's saying that uh, it's not a matter of just us interpreting. It's not a matter of us just explaining to ourselves what we think that it means. It's not about us individually it's about what God is teaching one of the things that I know about um, when I begin to believe something or I begin to see something in scripture I begin to read other people to see are they seeing what I'm seeing if I'm the only one on the planet who's ever seen something probably I'm wrong because I guarantee you somebody's seen it before and has written about it, and has talked about it. And in fact, as I read systematic theology, I'm reading what guys thought back in the days of, of Augustine, back in the days of Origen, back in the days of Aquinas, back in the days of, of uh, Melanchthon and Luther, and, and all these different guys, all commenting on the same exact passage, all commenting on the same exact spiritual uh, theological point. And you begin to see the weaknesses of different translations, or not translations, of different interpretations of, of a different text. And it helps you to understand that if you go with certain understanding, certain principles of understanding, you're going to come up with a limited number of possible interpretations. Let me ask you a question on that. How many interpretations can you have of a passage? I know a lot of people say, oh, there's many interpretations of a passage. Oh, really? If God is the author, do you think he had many things he wanted us to understand or one? 
He had one thing in mind that he wanted us to understand. There may be multiple applications, but one interpretation, and it's not mine, it's his. And so I need to seek his understanding, and then I have many ways that it can apply to different times in my life. At times when I'm, when I'm single, at times when I'm newly married, at times when a kid comes along, at times when you're an empty nester, at times when you're looking at retirement. I mean, all these different things, uh, I can have different applications at different seasons of life. But God meant one thing when he said it. And so I need to try to understand what he meant as I study his word. And so that's why it's important when we say no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. And it's because God is the one who originated Scripture. God is the one who can help me to understand what he meant. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories. That's Peter talking. He says, these aren't cleverly invented stories to push you in a direction. What were they? He says, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses of this stuff. This wasn't stuff that just happened. We were eyewitnesses of what came about. And God led us to write it in a way that would help you. And in fact, in verse 19, he says, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And all of a sudden, he kind of gets into some figurative language, right? And so we need to understand, what are some principles that we can use as we begin to read God's word? And so I want to list for you seven principles that I think that are very helpful as we try to understand God's word. The first one we've talked about a little bit, and that's understand or seek the intention of the original author. Seek the intention of the original author. That means that we understand historically, grammatically, and in every other sense, a particular passage of Scripture, culturally, literary forms, what kind of literature is it that we're reading right now? Second Peter, it's an epistle. So when we look at Second Peter, we think, where's he going with this book? It's helpful to chart the entire book so you can kind of see where he's going on it. And so we, I have a chart that I found online. It's a great chart of the book of Second Peter. And it starts off, he says in verses, uh, chapter 1, uh, he's dealing with diligence. And he, and he uses the phrase, uh, make every effort. And in fact, that's what he uses uh, in those verses back in chapter 3, down at the bottom of the chart. You see the same thing, diligence. Uh, he uses that same phrase, make every diligence or make every effort. Uh, and then he talks about true prophecy, which is the passage that we're looking at. And then he talks about false prophets all through chapter 2. And then he talks about true prophecy again. So you think, what's the focus here? Apparently, there were some false prophets among them. He wanted them to understand, how do you understand true prophecy? How do you understand truly what is from God? So that you can understand uh, uh, what God has said and not what people have tried to make it mean. And so there are false prophets. There are false teachers that, that bring Things that are not true to the text. And so you want to understand them. So you realize Peter's focus is on truth, is on them understanding God's word. And so 2 Peter is a powerful book in that regard. So that's seeing the overall, the bigger context uh, to understand it. How do you come up with 
a chart like this. Well, you read the book at a sitting. You kind of look for things that are repeated, like what we talked about before. You look at direction. You look at structure. Uh, and as you do that, you can get some help from online resources. Sometimes you'll come up with charts that aren't so great. Uh, uh, some, sometimes they're very wordy. Sometimes they're very, very helpful. And they give you direction. And so Googling a chart of a book is helpful. Uh, having a good study Bible is helpful. The NIV study Bible. There are other good study Bibles out there. I cut my teeth on the Ryrie study Bible. Uh, and what you'll find is it has charts in it. It has pictures. It has maps. It has commentary that helps you to understand some of the difficult parts of a particular text. But it's coming usually from one perspective, and so understanding that is helpful. There are many Bible software programs. I use Logos. Uh, it's, it's a favorite of mine. There are others, Accordance, and some other Bible study software that exists that will help you to understand some of the finer points. That, In fact, I remember hearing of a uh, of a, uh, a theologian who was going through uh, Logos training. And at one point he goes, this isn't fair. And the guy says, what do you mean? He says, now people can get this stuff without having to study the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that. And, and it's just right there accessible. He says, it's not fair. He says, I did all this work to get my degrees. And it's there. It's amazing how accessible some of uh, the uh, uh, more difficult, more obscure things were and now are available. Uh, Original context helps define meaning. So you need to understand, uh, like we just did with 2 Peter uh, uh, chapter 1, how does that fit in the larger context of the book? Where is he going in the book and, and how does that influence the context? Here's a way in which context is impacted by, um, uh, or a phrase is impacted by context. It was a ball. If I say that, you don't know what I mean by it. It was a ball. I'm going to give you four contexts in which that could be used. A baseball umpire. It was a ball. It wasn't a strike, right? You go to a dance that's very formal. It was a ball, right? You go to the golf course and you say, hey, what did you see over there in the woods? Well, I, it was a ball. I saw this little white, you know, thing in the, in the grass. I had so much fun at game night. It was a, a ball, right? Four different contexts, four different understandings. So the context is crucial to helping us to understand uh, a passage. Uh, understanding, uh, there was, a, a, in fact, in the same uh, article that I read by Greg uh, Kukul uh, on misquoting God, uh, he said that he uh, heard a pastor talking about Thomas, and Thomas says, uh, you know, he says, uh, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And he made this whole argument in his sermon that we don't need proof. We don't need apologetics. We don't need reasonable proofs about, about uh, uh, in order to believe. But if you read what he goes on to say, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Is Jesus saying you don't need reasons to believe? No. Is Matthew saying that? I mean, or John? No, he's not saying that. And so to jump off and take a phrase and run with it out of its context, it's screaming and kicking out of context. You need to put it back in the context. You need to look at the context and see what is he really saying here? 
And so uh, a third principle, seek the plain sense of a passage. It's not a magic book. We're not looking for some magic thing here. We're not looking for numerology. We're not looking and counting every fourth letter to see if there's a message or, you know, reading it backwards to see if it, you know, has some sort of other meaning. You just read it in its plain normal sense. And if you have a figure of speech, you take it as a figure of speech and you try to understand it as such. You don't take it in a wooden, literal way. Isaiah 55, 12. Many of you know Isaiah 55, 11, where, he talk, where God talks about his word and it says, it will not go out from me empty, but it will accomplish what, for, what, uh, for, for the purpose for which I have sent it. And so after he talks about God's word being fulfilled, then he talks about rejoicing, but he uses some terminology that's kind of interesting in Isaiah 55, 12. He says, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Do trees have hands? Well, I know they have branches that maybe they knock together, but they don't have hands. In fact, it reminded me of a Veggie Tales um, that I had seen. Uh, and so we're going to play just a little clip. Behold our creation, the Walmanator 3000! How are we clapping? I have no idea. <laughs> I always love that. How are we clapping their peas? They have no hands. Obviously, this is a figure of speech as well, right? Because peas don't have eyes and mouths. They don't clap. Uh, so it's their personified vegetables. Well, God personifies in Scripture in a similar sense, almost like a VeggieTales episode. He personifies the trees of the field, clapping their hands together and rejoicing because God's word has been fulfilled. And he's saying that's the way Israel needs to rejoice. And so he's using it as a figure of speech. In 2 Peter 3, 8, uh, we see that, that uh, there's an often misquoted a passage, it says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with, a day, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And people will take that and go, okay, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, those six days of creation, those were 6,000 years. Well, that doesn't allow enough time for evolution or whatever they're trying to prove. Uh, uh, 6,000 is not enough. But that's not what Peter is saying. He doesn't say the day of the Lord is a thousand years. He says it's like a thousand years. He's comparing it as a simile. It's a figure of speech. It could simply mean God accomplishes a lot in a single day. Obviously, creation, a lot occurred in a single day. Principle number four, understand an unclear passage in the light of a clearer one. There are times we go to a passage and we go, we, we can study it, look at it, think about it, read all the commentaries on it, and we come away scratching our head going, I'm not sure which one it is. We don't want to go either. <laughs> so in Revelation 17, he says, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings which have not received a kingdom. We always do that when we don't get our way, don't we? And I find that when I'm reading the scriptures, sometimes when I look at the scriptures and I don't get my way and I don't have what I want, I respond in a similar manner. I'm a lot, I don't throw a tantrum externally, but internally I do. 
Revelation 17, 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. And so you, you realize Scripture is interpreting Scripture, and you think, well, what was the ten kings mean? Well, he tells us. In Matthew 13, 8, the parable of the sower, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. And so we don't, aren't left to try to figure it out on our own. Jesus explains it for us. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, it says, a virgin will be with child uh, and uh, and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And that was written during the time of Ahaz the king. And some would look at that and say, well, that was referring to Ahaz. That was referring to that time frame and, and doesn't really have any reference to a future prophecy. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, explains that passage to us. In Matthew 1, 21, he says, She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from, his, from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. So scripture is interpreting scripture. Many times we have clearer passages that help us with those which we struggle with. Another thing is looking for timeless principles. I know that in uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I memorized that as a young believer because I thought, you know, the Lord has plans for me, uh, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give me a future and a hope, right? And you look at that passage and you go, well, that's talking about Israel and their 70 years of captivity. And so I pulled it out of context. I put it back in the context and I think, oh, I can't use that verse. No, I can use it. Because I look for the timeless principle. I have a, a picture of that if you want to just show the timeless principle picture. Timeless principle then, and what does it mean now? Or how can it, how, what's the modern application? The meaning's still the same, but I have a modern application to uh, what uh, the principle, the timeless principle that's there in the passage. Uh, a sixth principle is distinguished between Israel and the church. Many times we take something that was intended for Israel and then we try to apply it to us and we realize that doesn't necessarily work so well. And then the last principle is looking at the type of literature, whether it's law, whether it's narrative, wisdom, poetry, gospel, parable, epistle, apocalyptic. It can all be uh, uh, how that passage uh, is... is uh, Intended to be used in part is due to the part of the way that it's used or the way that, it, uh, that it's originally written. For instance, the book of Acts is narrative. It means that when it's a narrative, it means that I don't just draw a principle out of the book of Acts because it may be describing something rather than prescribing how I should be doing it. And so we need to understand that description is different than prescription, uh, that the epistles are a little more strong in doing. And so when we look at God's word, we need to consider what he has to say in regard to these seven principles. If we do, we look for the author's understanding. If we look for the original context, if we look for the clearer passage or the one that explains the one that we're reading, if we look for the timeless principle, if we distinguish between Israel and the church, and if we look at the types of literature then we're going to come out with an understanding of Scripture that's closer to what the original author understood. And then when we get together as believers in Christ and we talk about these passages and we have these same principles in mind, it guides us in our understanding of God's Word. It strengthens our Bible study time together. And we hear somebody else's perspective and ours and we, and we work through the issues and we're not seeking just to win the argument so that my way is right and your way is wrong, 
But we're both seeking to understand what was his way, what was his understanding, and it causes our times in the Word to be rich, our times of discussion to be powerful, because we're both seeking after the same thing after all, to understand the mind of God that he has revealed to us in his Word. Father, we come to you this morning. And we pray that you would guide us in your word. I pray that you would guide us in understanding it. Father, we admit to you there are many things in there that are hard to understand. Which Peter says about Paul's writings, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scripture. May we not be those people. May I not be that guy that distorts your word. May we be a people who handle accurately the word of truth. Because we see it in its context and we want to understand what you have intended for us to understand. So that we're not just living according to our own principles, but yours. Guide us and lead us. Father, I pray every time we open your word that we would think of these things. I pray that every time we get into the Bible discussion that we would think of these things. And not try to just win the argument. But that we would try to understand you more clearly so that we can follow you with all our heart and soul and might. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.